Welcome to Reading the Room, a literary podcast featuring author interviews and discussions with bookish content creators. I am your host, Jalen, also known as The Bar in the Bookcase on YouTube. I am so incredibly thrilled and honored to share that I am joined today by Alice McDermott, winner of the National Book Award and a three-time finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. She joins me today to talk about her brand new novel, Absolution, available now from FSG Books. I am still pinching myself that this happened, and I am so incredibly proud of this discussion and getting a chance to talk to Alice was just such a joy and a pleasure, and I felt like I was in the presence of someone that just completely is a master of the form, and I hope you also really enjoyed this discussion. And to give you a brief introduction to Absolution, American women, American wives, have been mostly minor characters in the literature of the Vietnam War, but in Absolution they take center stage. Trisha is a shy newlywed, married to a rising attorney on loan to Navy intelligence. Charlene is a practiced corporate spouse and mother of three, a beauty and a bully. In Saigon in 1963, the two women form a wary alliance as they balance the era's mandate to become helpmeets to their ambitious husbands with their own inchoate impulse to do good for the people of Vietnam. Sixty years later, Charlene's daughter, spurred by an encounter with an aging Vietnam vet, reaches out to Trisha. Together they look back at their time in Saigon, taking wry account of that pivotal year and discovering how their own lives as women on the periphery of politics, of history, of war, of their husband's convictions, have been shaped and burdened by the same sort of unintended consequences that followed America's tragic interference in Southeast Asia. It is a novel about folly and grace, obligation, sacrifice, and finally, the quest for absolution in a broken world. And if you don't believe me, this novel is incredible, and patch it, and she also has blurred the book, saying that Alice McDermott has always been one of our greatest writers, but here she exceeds every expectation. Absolution is one of the finest contemporary novels I've read. It is a moral masterpiece. If you enjoy this episode or enjoy reading the room generally, a great way of supporting the show is leaving a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts or sharing the episode with family, friends, on socials, all are great ways of getting the word out about the podcast. And now without further ado, here is my discussion with Alice McDermott. Alice, thank you so much for joining me today. This means so much to me and I'm so excited to talk to you and be a part of the publication of this amazing novel. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So, I mean, this is your ninth novel and I wanted to ask you, you know, in terms of how you think about your own expectations for the art of fiction and your continual, you know, pursuit of writing novels, you, you're, you're still going with it and still doing it. And I'm just wondering, like, approaching this book, like, how did it change or remain the same from your previous novels? And like, what does absolution mean for you as a writer? Well, that's a great place to start. Um, you know, I mean, I suppose, to be honest, every book is kind of an adventure. And it always feels I always feel like a new novelist. Anytime I start out on a story, um, I, you know, people have identified certain tropes that seem to follow from one book to the other, but I don't identify them. I always think, wow, I've never done anything like this before. Um, else I don't know why I would do it, why enter into the struggle. Um, I think probably something somewhat, somewhat distinctive about the, you know, my entering into the composition of this novel was um, I really felt a kind of free fall into it. Um, I, I had some vague notions, obviously, of of where I want, what I wanted to do, where I wanted the focus to be, but how that would play out and who these characters were was a complete mystery to me when when I started writing. Um, it it was really um, that case of of um, just letting go and trying to hear the voices, and um, this makes it sound too easy. 
um, because it's not. And I don't want to discourage young writers who say, well, it doesn't work that way for me. But there is something of the simply following the characters and and taking down their testimony um, and, and allowing them to be themselves, not to get in the way, not to say, well, that's not the point I wanted to make. I'm the author, but but rather how can I fully imagine the experiences of these characters truthfully and authentically? And then let me hope I find story in the process of doing that. So I want to ask you so much about, you know, the structure of this book and the epistolary nature of it. But before we even get into that, I feel like a great place that I love to start is with epigraphs. Um, and there are two for this novel. And I feel like they speak, you know, very directly to what thematically is going on in this book. So just to share them quickly, um, the first one is the anguish of the earth absolves our eyes. And the second is, but how I wished there existed someone to whom I could say that I was sorry. And so I guess I want to just open floor, let you talk about what these mean for you and how you landed on these as the epigraphs for the book. Right. Thank you. So thank you for even noticing the epigraphs. It doesn't always happen. <laughs> you know, you, you know, you put a lot of thought into them and then it's like, whoop. Why buy it? You know, missed it completely. Oh, is that there? Um, so thank you. Um, yeah, the first is a, 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 a poem called Absolution by Siegfried Sassoon, um, written out of his experience in the First World War. Um, and um, the, that sense, that's the first line of the poem. Um, the anguish of the earth absolves our eyes. I mean, spit, just has always spoken to me about the, what can we do about this human condition of ours? Um, uh, you know, and actually this poem has come back to me so much in the past few days when we see what's going on in Israel and the Middle East, um, that it's just, it seems so impossible and suffering is inevitable. Um, we're mortal physical beings with all kinds of flaws um, and, and the earth is in so much anguish that there is that first reaction of, I'm absolved, I can't, I can't do anything about it, I can't fix it, we're headed down this slippery slope of life. Uh, and, um, and yet, really, the other side of that, the twin of that is, we all feel a sense of responsibility. It's almost a natural reaction. It's, it's that, and yet we, we can't influence events. We can't change the, the existential facts of our existence. And yet we continually try. Um, and into that comes that, that notion of responsibility. And that leads to the second epigraph, which is the, the last line of Graham Greene's novel, The Quiet American, um, which was really in many ways the inspiration for my approach to this story. Um, and that is, I, I know I can't change it. And yet I feel I want to apologize, <laughs> you know, who can, who can I tell, um, you know, uh, who can I tell my sorrow to, um, you know, the, that, that biblical cry that is also echoed um, by the, the journalist narrator in Graham's novel. So it's both that we throw up our hands, we say, this is, this is the nature of life. And yet, at the same time, in the same mind, we say, um, ah, but there's regret. Ah, but I wish I could have, um, but I feel guilty. Um, so I think that that 
those twinning things. And, you know, this novel is all about the yin and the yang. The there's all kinds of twinning going on in the story. And it's those two things, what's right, what's wrong. I wanna do right, but it may end up being wrong. So those two lines really struck me as, um, as at the heart of, of thematically what this novel became. Long answer, sorry. <laughs> no, I love it. I mean, I think it speaks to so much. I like going into my next question about this idea of twinning and the two perspective perspectives that we see in this book, um, both Trisha and Rainey. I mean, I'm wondering how you landed on the epistolary nature of of this book because it's it's very clever in that it it reveals itself to be letters, um, and there's this idea of it being kind of confessional or or trying to kind of make sense of the past and memory and how these characters are doing that. Um, so I'm wondering, you mentioned before about you know trying to figure out like what these characters are, like the mystery of the novel as you were crafting it. Um, how did the the final two um, three part, but two perspective structure of the book come to you? Right, um, right away I understood that. Um, I, I knew that um, my focus, and again, this comes from the inspiration kind of in dialogue with The Quiet American. Um, there, there's a very brief scene in um, The Quiet American where Fowler, the, the hardened British journalist, tough guy, narrator, um, just, just glancingly looks at two American girls in Saigon in the 50s. Um, obviously, they're secretaries in the State Department or whatever. Um, and he thinks about how clean they look and how uncomplicated and passionless they must be. Um, and over the years, since I've read the book and read it over again, I, I live inside the Beltway. I have run into lots of women who could have been the models for those girls. And they, none of them were uncomplicated or passionless. Um, so I knew I wanted to get at, well, then, you know, who are these women on the periphery um, of events in this very eventful year of 1963? Um, but I also knew immediately and instinctively that these would not be women who would write memoirs. They would have to be invited to tell their stories. Um, these were, you know, born and raised 1950s, um, wear stockings, get your nails done, use hairspray, um, you know, understand how to advance your husband's career. That That's who, that that's the milieu. Um, these were not women who would say, well, now I'm going to sit down and tell my story. What was it like? So I knew she, the Trisha, the, the first narrator would have to be invited to tell her story. And she would have to be invited by someone who she was not intimidated by. Um, this is the quiet generation of women, the quiet Americans, the even more quiet women <laughs> among them. So that's how I heard the voice. Um, you have asked me a question and now I'm answering it. Um, and of course, as, as that developed, I understood now I also have to give voice to the person who asked the question. Um, who also was there at that time and place, but in a very different way. So it was a kind of call and response. Um, begin with the answer, the, the invitation to tell your story. And you're absolutely right that almost inadvertently for both women turns into a kind of confessional. Suddenly they're, they're Trisha first and, and then Rainey, they're, they're telling each other things they haven't told anybody else. 
And we meet these characters um, in an opening scene of this novel that I, I love so much. Um, it's so memorable. And I know um, in your work of nonfiction, you, you, you talk about this idea of having memorable um, aspects to, to literature and how you look for that when you're reading. And it's a very, you know, I don't know. So I guess my question for you about it is this opening scene. I, I love an opening scene that is at a party. First of all, I just think it's it's always <laughs> interesting. It's enticing. Um, but for you in this opening scene, like, how did you think about it? Because it reminded me a bit of one of my favorite novels, um, Commonwealth by Anne Patchett, who I know has been an, an advocate for this book so much. Um, so yeah, open yes. floor to talk about that uh, like, incredible opening scene. Yeah. Um, well, again, what are the things that are memorable? You know, um, the, the we mark our lives looking back so often by celebrations, parties, um, weddings and wakes, if I can coin a phrase. Um, uh, so, so that was, that was part of it. Um, and one thing that I knew I had, I had this impulse to take a look at these women's lives that began back when I was an undergrad and first read quiet American. Um, more recently, um, I had a more recent in the last, I don't even know, 15 years or so, um, I had a conversation and I think it was at a cocktail party with a woman um, whose husband was um, you know, involved in something. I don't, I don't even remember if it was military or industrial, um, but was in Saigon in the early sixties. And um, just in the course of conference, she said something about selling Barbie clothes in um, the Adai, the, the Vietnamese dress, selling them um, in Saigon. And when she told me this, I had this flashback to an incident when I was a kid that I was on a play date or something. I, I was sent to play with some kid I didn't know that well. And she had a Barbie doll who had an Adai, who was dressed um, weird thing, you know, here we are, you know, in Washington, D.C. in the 2000s, and she happens to mention this, and then I have this weird recollection. So I knew there was going to be a Barbie <laughs> in the first scene. I did not know that um, the girl who had the Barbie's mother was going to be who Charlene was going to be who she was until I began writing. And she sort of, she just made herself known. Um, through the writing. Yeah, I feel like this is a perfect place to talk about Charlene because she, in many ways, I feel like she doesn't, you know, get the opportunity to you know, give her own story in this book. We only hear about her from the other characters, but I feel like she's very much at the core of what you're exploring here. She's very, like, at once clear in her character and how she kind of makes herself known in the page. Um, she's very, you know, she's assertive and but at the same time, there is this mysteriousness to her about what her true, I guess, the question of like moral inquiry about her. And I'm wondering, in terms of this idea of inconsequential good um, feel, being kind of like the underpinning of this character, how did you think about crafting the mysteriousness yet kind of kind of stoic nature of Charlene? You know, I think um, sort of my first reaction once I realized she was in the book, <laughs> she was here, she, she had arrived, um, was... Um, you know, understanding that the first impulse, maybe it's a general impulse, maybe it's only my impulse and it's unfair of me to attribute it to anybody else, but is to mock her or to take her down a peg. Um, you know, she's a pushy, blonde, um, you know, spouse, corporate spouse. How unlikable can you be, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and, and again, it's that, 
all right, this this novel is not about me, the author. It's about the characters. Um, so so hold back on that. No, don't sugarcoat her. Don't make her better than she might have been. But certainly allow her to be as complex as she has to be. She's human, you know. Um, and in order for her to be fully human, she can't be any just one thing. She can't just be the corporate wife. She can't just be the disapproving um, etiquette maven. Um, she can't be the do-gooder who ends up complicating matters by her you know, intrusions uh, into other cultures and other lives. She's all those things and none of those things. She's uniquely herself. So that was my responsibility to bring her to the page as uniquely herself, even though she also fits every cliche <laughs> um, of the bitchy, you know, catty a uh, wealthy corporate wife um, making doing good sort of uh, her way to keep herself occupied. So what followed from that was that, and again, it comes back to this whole twinning idea. Um, is she good or not? Are her efforts, um, Are she says she wants to do good. And right after that, she says, but it takes money, <laughs> you know? Um, so it, it's this, um, altruism and and this hardcore reality and understanding of the world and it, it seems to me you evoke doing good and then you evoke but it takes money you're evoking both good and evil at the same time um it's never simple to make money even if the money is meant for what appears to be good so i think she does remain a sort of a cipher she she um because she's she's not any one thing um but i'm not sure any of us <laughs> is ever any one thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think this idea of twinning with her balanced with, I guess, a sort of foil with Trisha and how Trisha is kind of, you know, she's newly in Saigon, she's young um, and trying to, you know, discover herself as well. And kind of how you kind of play these two characters off of each other is really interesting. And I, I'm wondering how going back to Trisha and the way that she Kind of has this this desire to be a mother and also she's you know very young and also has this force of charlene and also peter many different things that force it with trisha how did you think about her character but also having her be the one telling you the story there's kind of this idea of how much is reliable in what she's telling because there's this one moment later in the book where she admits to lying about something in her narrative to rainy i won't say what it is but um I did, it made me think about this idea of like truth and fallibility um of memory and how you thought about you centering the novel with trisha um for the most of the, the page count here right yeah it, it's that combination of confessional um and and memoir and um the the sometimes the inadvertent things we reveal um, but also how storytelling and evoking memory um, are, are much the same thing. Um, you know, we tell, and certainly that's, that speaks to the historical context of the novel. Um, you know, uh, looking at a year like 1963 from the present, from where we are now, 60 years later, um, you know, there's all kinds of ways to spin what happened then because of hindsight, because we know so much now. We know what a disaster um, America's involvement in Vietnam was about to become, had not yet become in 1963. So when we look back, we look back through what we what knowledge we have gained. Um, so I think it makes it very easy to, um, to look at the past 
and be judgmental. You know, it's very easy to say, well, if I was there, I would have known. I would have been the the person who said, no, this is, um, but, but taken in full context, no, if you were there, you probably would have thought, if you had her life, you would have thought, <laughs> seen the world the way she saw it. That's what fiction does. Fiction says, yeah, have that life. Um, not just look at that era or just look at that moment, but have this single person's life and then see what you think um, of, of all the peripheral events. Um, so even in, in personally uh, telling her story, um, the process of storytelling, first there's the management of the memories, um, the stuff that I didn't wanna say, the stuff that I'm gonna pretend I forgot, <laughs> you know, um, but in the, and, and this is very, very much, I think, parallel to, to composing fiction, um, in the process of storytelling, in the process of, of trying to recall, some truth gets confronted, whether we set out to confront it or not, um, sort of stumble across the truth. And that goes back to, I think that's why the call and response um, First, the invitation from Rainey, the child who was in Saigon, uh, Charlene's uh, daughter. Um, Hi, a voice from the past, tell me how you knew my mother. Do you remember this young guy who was there? There's that response. And then there's that, well, you shared with me, now I'm going to catch you up and share with you. And then that accounts for the third. Now let me tell you the truth. We've established this sharing of stories. We've established sharing some things we hadn't shared with anyone before. And now I'm gonna tell you the, the part that I haven't really wanted to confront. It's that it is, it's truth and reconciliation. But first you have to get to truth. That's hard. <laughs> I guess it's a craft question because I love hearing the way you talk about how this was composed and how you think about, I guess, your place as an author in the, create, in the creation of this, of this work. Um, I started doing this podcast, I think, because at the time I was reading a lot of like auto fiction and it made me think about the place of an author in a work of fiction and what questions that raises um, or how much should the author be considered at a remove from narrative. And I feel like that might be different for you know every writer and how they think about themselves as tied to their to their works or their novels. Um, but for you. I mean, how do you think about your place as the sort of God over the novel of, of making everything happen on the page? And how do you like, do you consider yourself always at a remove from what's happening in the in the work? Or do you think it's just this interesting idea of like channeling, like how can, how does an author embody other other people? And how do you create these such like alive characters? I mean, I'm not a writer myself, so I just find it so it seems like magic. And it's a very broad question, but I'm wondering how you think about that. Yes, yeah. Um all the time I was teaching, I was advocating um, for my fiction writers um, to, and, and some of this was pushback against auto fiction. I have to confess, I have a little hard time with self-centered uh, writing. I even have a hard time with novels. And of course there are many wonderful, wonderful novels that do this, but novels about writers. Um, and I open a book and I and I find out my narrator or my point of view character is a writer. I go, oh God, <laughs> you know. Um, but that's personal. That's me. That doesn't mean that the art and the craft isn't wonderful. But I've always told my students, from my perspective, it's the writer puts herself 
at the service of character, not the other way around, not the character being the puppet for the author's um, thoughts and experiences and opinions, um, but, but rather tell me who you are um, and I will help to get you to the page. Um, you know, uh, I read because I'm interested in other lives and I write because I'm interested in other lives. Um, I, I think that there's a great um, blessing in fiction that takes us out of our own experience <laughs> and, and allows us to live the experience of uh, people unlike ourselves, but as vividly, probably more vividly, um, than than everyday life provides um, to our narrow, you know, point of view, our two eyes to go behind the eyes of someone else and see the world is is a wonderful gift, and it is there is a kind of magic to it, um, you know. So to to me, it's thrilling to channel another character, but the other side of that, it's all dualities, <laughs> is um, the responsibility you have to truth and authenticity, um, not to write the character to your own expectations, um, to allow the character to, to sort of live and breathe. Um, and if the character is not doing what you were hoping plot-wise or story-wise, then you accommodate the character, not the other way around. Um, throw out the story and tell another story because this character doesn't want to tell that story. <laughs> it, it's tied to also to this idea, I think, of how you render setting, particularly in this book in, you know, 1963, Vietnam. Um, I'm, I'm wondering how you think about, you know, realism and rendering through description um, this time. Like, how do you, I, maybe this comes in revision or maybe it's, you know, actively while you're writing, but how do you think about you know, rendering an accurate depiction of what this was like at this time. You know, I think I think the other the other sort of magical aspect, um, and or or maybe it's 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 more concrete than that. Maybe for me, it's the art <laughs> of of narrative. The art um, is that yes, you want you want accuracy, and if you're writing realism, which I suppose is what I'm doing, um, uh, then you don't want to break that realism by huge errors in the script. But at the same time, the art of fiction demands that everything has more than one meaning. Everything is a choice. If I'm a journalist, if I'm a historian, if I'm a travel writer, I'm confined by what's actually there. The fiction writer is making all of this up, <laughs> you know, even when it's based on historical accounts, even when it's in a real place you're still making it up. You don't have to write about that place. You could write about another place. You know, you could write about a fictional place that kind of looks like that place. You know? So if you're making that choice, then I've always felt, you know, very strictly and maybe conservatively that every detail should matter to the art, to the entire construction, not just, well, it was there. And so I recorded it. Um, so, so with this novel, writing about a place I've never been to. When I started the novel, I thought this is my, I've always wanted to visit Vietnam and this is my excuse to go and I'll feel like a real writer because I'll be doing research. Um, and then COVID came along. I thought, well, that's not gonna happen. And um, these characters want, want their story to be told. So I just sort of read everything. Um, 
during the first summer of lockdown, um, I reread all the the fiction writers who brought me to Vietnam, like Jim O'Brien um, and uh, Robert Stone. Um, uh, gosh, Tree of Smoke was, you know, amazing to be there. Then I went back and I read uh, a lot of the accounts that I have read over the years, uh, Philip Caputo's A Rumor of War, you know, many of the war stories, obviously, uh, memoirs. Um, then I went back and, and read you know, David Halberstam and Neil Sheehan and all the, the journalists at that time, uh, Marguerite Higgins, um, who was really one of the few female journalists covering uh, Vietnam, um, and then just kind of absorbed all that and then pushed it all out the door and forgot it. And then went back to say, but yeah, but what's Trisha? What's Trisha's experience of this place? Because if I'm choosing details that don't also reveal character, then I'm, I'm not creating a work. I'm copying something, you know, I'm after a journalistic account. Um, I'm after a, me a memoir, but this is a house of cards, so to speak, any novel is. Um, so everything is a choice. Um, so filter everything you know through the character, but the things that she notices um, will or should in the best of all possible fictional <laughs> artistic worlds have resonance throughout the whole book. It's a construct, yeah, it's a I challenge. Mean, yeah, it seems, it seems so hard. And I think, you know, one thing that's a part of this, you know, house of cards and thinking about your work, you know, generally, I mean, you, you very directly confront some very harsh realities um, directly on the page. And I was thinking about how you get to them and how they feel. I, I rarely cry when I read, but I feel incredibly emotional when I read your, your books. And I'm, I'm like, how does she do this? And how can she, you know, confront these harsh realities in a way that feels, I don't know if the word earned is correct, but it, it feels true. Maybe that's a better way of saying it. But I'm wondering for you, when you get to the hard parts of your stories, how does that feel for you when you get there? And how do you care for yourself as a writer, you know, getting there? Ooh, that's a really interesting question. It's it's maybe the incantatory nature of writing prose. It's also a poetry, but I'm, I'm not good enough to write poetry, but um, you know, that evoking, image and character and story and voice all at the same time. Um, and, and I think you do all that to move towards those moments. And in some ways, what you're doing is you're, you're moving the story, you're moving the work towards something that defies our language, defies pinning down. You can only hint at it. This is you know, this is why we use metaphor. This is um, why we use image. Those are the scariest moments when when you're writing, but they also feel the most necessary. You know, why if if you're not moving language towards those things for which we have no words to describe, then then what are you doing? <laughs> you know, because you're not saying anything that anybody else couldn't say or hasn't said. You know, I mean, I don't have any great wisdom about America's involvement in Vietnam or um, 19, the year 1963 and all the pivotal. I mean, that's been noted and, and um, far wiser minds than, but than I can tell you all about that. But it's this through character, through the manipulation of language, um, how do we get at those things that we all recognize? I mean, I think that's what that's what I go to literature for. And I think that's what's kept literature valuable. 
we can all recognize there's something deeply human in this character's, in this moment, in this response, in this despair, in this joy that the character is experiencing. Um, and we can't, we can't define it, but we recognize it when we see it. And sometimes it brings tears to your eyes and sometimes it makes, makes you laugh, Riley. Sometimes it just comes back to you, as you were saying earlier, you know, when you've stopped reading and you're off doing something else. And then that little bit of, it's an experience that you can't define, um, that, that you can't get anywhere else either. <laughs> to, to give you a question about this is, you progress as a novelist and like different challenges that kind of come with new novels and how you said earlier, how you feel like a new, you know, a fresh novelist every time you go to the page. How much of this do you think is informed by one, your reading life and two, teaching um, students? And like, do you, do you feel like you've learned through those processes of reading and teaching? Um, and like, how do you kind of take that with you when you sit down yourself to write something? Sure. Well, first reading. I mean, we all become writers because we're readers first, you know, I mean, I've heard writers say they weren't and I just don't believe them. <laughs> you know, it's just you're just making that up. Of course, you know, it's you don't become a composer without ever having heard music and being moved by it. Um, uh, so, yeah, for we we know the experience as readers first. We know that moment when something touches us when and that we don't have words for that or that we've experienced um, a, a life or, a, you know, even even just a brief moment in someone else's life that has become part of our own memories, you know, that that feels like a lived experience because it was so vivid and and opened our eyes to something, even if it was just briefly um, that we recognized as true. And so you have that experience as a reader um, and then you think, hmm, I, I'd like to try to do that. That's a really wonderful trick. <laughs> you know, that's a wonderful thing to give to another human being here. Read this and feel this. Um, so yeah, you're I'm always guided and continually guided by um, you know, the writers who who manage it, you know. Um, and you say, yeah, I I'll I'd like to try that. I don't know if I'll ever do it, but I'd like to try that. But it's really interesting. Um, your question is really interesting because to to, to then think about as a teacher, what you're trying to do with, with, your, with your young writers um, is, is to figure out how did that happen? <laughs> you know, you get together with a bunch of young writers, um, MFA students who have, you know, God bless them are so bright and so talented and could do so many other things. And they've chosen to write literary fiction you know, or poetry. Wow, these are wonderful souls. Um, but then you then you sit down and say, but what are the mechanics of that? Look at that book that you love that changed you that that gave you this moment. Um, and then you want to know the mechanics of it. How how did that happen? You know, um, and that's when you get to the, you know, um, everything counts. You know, I've, I can't tell you how many times I've had um, new writers look at me when I say every, in fiction, everything counts. You're going to say that's a yellow dress, not a red dress, then yellow matters. Think about it. And they look at you like, oh, not everything. Oh, come on. <laughs> you know. Um, but it's a goal. It's a goal. Yeah. Every once in a while, something just happens to be there and, and it ends up in the story, but it's a goal. And that's part of the mechanics. That's think about it. You know, think about the choices you're making. Um, 
be conscious of the effect of the rhythm of your sentence or where you put a space break. Um, this, this is the, this is the craft um, of, you know, a, a, a really nebulous art in many ways, um, because what we're trying to do is get to that moment that we can't define when literature shines for us and affects us and opens our eyes and touches our souls. I don't know. I, I feel like in terms of prose in particular, it's, as you're saying, it's kind of this, this constant act of like addition, each sentence builds on each other, but you're also omitting so much with every sentence. Every choice you make is also, you're making a choice not to do something. Um, exactly. And I'm wondering for you, like with re revising, for, for example, absolution, um, how much of that process in terms of getting those choices right comes in revision or, or trusting your gut when you first put it to page? Like how, much, how do you balance that? You know, it's both. Obviously, it's it's um, you know you got to get it down. <laughs> you can't yeah. make a decision about something that's not on the page. And and in the process of getting to the page, you're using language, you're grabbing at details, and and you just might get the detail that makes all the difference. Um, the 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 language that you use may change what the next sentence is going to be. And there's all that. But then there's also that kind of cool revision. Um, I think the thing is a. As a writer, I probably struggle with the most is um, too obvious, too subtle. <laughs> you know, how much to leave out, how much to put in. Do I need to explain this? Is it apparent to the careful reader? Do I have any careful readers? You know, um, should I, should I put a diagram? Um, I, I, as a reader, I appreciate the writers who trust me as a reader, um, who don't explain, um, who who let the image speak, um, who let the um, the white space sort of speak, echo. Um, uh, you know, what's unsaid is as important as what's said, and I feel the writer trusts me to understand that. As a reader, that's what I appreciate. But as a writer. You know, it's, oh, nobody's going to get this. <laughs> no, nobody's going to. Oh, my God. You know, I just dropped this little line now. You know, I think it just is obvious, but it's just like, you know, uh, some writers, some readers read a lot faster than others. And, oh, I didn't notice that. I was, you know, speeding along, uh, trying to finish your book in a day that you took seven years to write. <laughs> you know? and, oh, yeah, I didn't notice that detail. So, um, and I know young writers, um, probably all writers struggle with this, but I think that's my particular um, uh, burden um, that I want to stop, but I'm not sure I said enough. I don't want to say too much. Um, and that's, again, where you have to let the characters be your guide. You, you have to. This character would not say that. This character would not um, draw lines between this and that. Um, so explicitly. And so I can't as the author, um, even if I'd like to, because I'm worried nobody's going to get it. <laughs> that makes me think about something that I don't do enough, but I, I'm trying to make it more of a thing that I do is reread because I feel like when I finished Absolution um, and finally, you know, when you close the page, when, you, when I finish your book, I'm like, how did how did she do that? Right. And it makes me want to go back to the star and pick it up again. So I was reading the, int the intro again in preparation for this. And I was like, I need to read this book over again, because there's so much you can gather on reread once you're already familiar with the story. And it kind of fundamentally changes how you read something. Um, so I guess the question for you is just about 
rereading and what, what you think about that in terms of how much like time you kind of give to works of literature that you consume or when you feel like you've kind of had enough of a one work, if that makes sense. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we all, you know, we're, we're like, you know, people who bird watch, you know, readers always want to add to their life list, you know, um, and, and rereading doesn't get you there, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I read it. It's on my list. I did it. You know, I go to a cocktail party. Somebody mentions it. I say, I read that, <laughs> you know, I'm good. Um, but there is, you're, you're absolutely right. There's great pleasure in, in rereading. Um, and um, especially over time, you know, I was an English major a very long time ago. So I had, you know, a long list of books that I read then that I can revisit. Um, and the ones that were good, were very, very good then are very, very good now. Um, and some don't stand up uh, quite uh, as well. But um, one, one book that I don't know how many times I've read it because I've taught it, um, but I just reread it this over the course of the summer. Um, Bleak House, Charles Dickens, Bleak House. Um, it's a great book to teach. It's got all kinds of um, voices and uh, all his Dickensian connections. Um, but there was one moment that I don't think I ever noticed before. And it just, um, for all that, it, you know, big thick Dickens novel, um, taught it, read it, I know it, now the character's okay, talked about it with friends. Um, and I came upon these paragraphs um, and it was just, it was just like a whole new book. It was just this, this revelation of this um, amazing compassion, um, just, just a few paragraphs um, that I know I happily read before and went on to the next chapter. Um, and this time after all this rereading, it just, it, it just amazed me. It was one of those moments where you have to close the book and go, Oh my gosh, wow. Um, so that, you know, that's a great, that's a great benefit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I need to read Charles Dickens. I have not read, I read Great, great Expectations in high school, I believe, but I haven't gone back to his work. So Bleak House has been, you yeah, know, a tone. You know, everybody reads Dickens in high school and it's not the, you know, it's really not, it's really for grownups. Yeah. And it seems so long and it goes on, you know, Christmas Carol is easy, it's short. Um, but but it does. There's a tremendous wisdom and humanity that I think a, a mature mind can can appreciate. As I say, this this one moment, um, uh, I, I won't I won't belabor it except that there was this amazing parallel to Donald Trump in this moment in the character that actually for a minute made me feel something of his humanity that, you know, a, a kind of Trumpian character who had a moment where the, where Dickens makes you feel sorry for him, <laughs> you know, because, you know, and he has a beautiful wife. I mean, there, the parallels were there, but it was just like, oh my God, <laughs> yeah. you know, he did that. He, he made me feel sorry for this character and and see him in a whole new light after you know 400 pages and then i was kind of like he's kind of trumpian and oh maybe trump has a soft spot too you know that's amazing <laughs> yeah that, that that's the beauty of i think of novelists and why i think i'm so enamored with what you do because i mean even going to the title of this book absolution and how you you know directly kind of confront the 
you know, the flawed sides of your characters. And I feel like through the act of your writing, you, in a sense, kind of absolve them. Um, and that kind of ties to what you're saying about what Charles Dickens is doing there with that character and seeing the humanity in everyone. I mean, I guess uh, to give you a question about the title, um, when did you know Absolution was a title for this book? Um, and I guess, what is like, what does the title mean for you now that the book is, you know, finished? Yeah. Um, well, at, at first I, I was a little bit hesitant about it. Um, there's a wonderful uh, Scott Fitzgerald story called Absolution. Um, again, I probably read first time, maybe even in high school, because I was in love with Scott Fitzgerald. Um, and it, it it's a great little story. And it was meant to be the first chapter of The Great Gatsby. Um, and uh, I have always thought amusedly um, that if it had been the first chapter of The Great Gatsby, Scott Fitzgerald would have been called a Catholic writer and nobody would read The Great Gatsby, you know? It would be like, you know, he'd be with, you know, G.K. Chesterton, like a oh, Catholic writer, forget it. Um, I don't think most people think of Fitzgerald as a Catholic writer, but it, he would have been if that short story had opened The Great Gatsby. So I've always sort of been uh, found that title endearing. Um, but I was convinced um, to use it about maybe two or two years before I finished. Um, I had dinner with a with a Monsignor, a real New York priest, a great guy, a great priest. There are great priests, um, very smart um, in his 90s. Um, and he asked me, you know, what's the name of the book you're working on? And I said, well, I'm thinking about calling it Absolution. And he said, terrible title. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, oh, Monsignor George, really? And he said, yes, because nobody understands what it means. Um, and we ended up having a long conversation about the nature of absolution, not quite forgiveness. It's something else. Um, and, and that whole idea of um, how we pardon ourselves for our failings, how we pardon others. Um, for what they've done, you know, there, there is, and I think this is very much the world we find ourselves in now. We look at the past and, and, and point fingers. Um, you know, we're so sure who's right and who's wrong, regardless of your, you know, the right is right, the left is wrong. Um, uh, and, and we don't look at context and, and we're so reluctant to, to offer absolution because that sounds like we're going to forget. You know, we're going to obliterate the past. We're we're going to ignore um, mistakes that were made, uh, evil that was done. Um, but to to offer absolution and to receive absolution is much more difficult than that. Um, it's to say, um, I see who you are, and I see what you've done. I see it from your point of view. I understand the context, and I suppose. Had I been you in that time and place, I may have done the same thing, um, but I'm not. But I won't. It's 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 not so much saying I'm not judging. It's saying we are all in this. You know, we we are all creatures of our circumstances. Um, we're all capable of great good and great evil. Um, we're all capable of making terrible mistakes we're all capable of good intentions that go awry, but we're also capable of good intentions that actually produce good. This is our condition. 
all of us. Um, so, so absolution, you know, comes that that notion of absolution, you know, comes from recognizing our common, flawed, <laughs> complicated humanity. And and once you recognize, then you can absolve, but you don't forget, um, and you don't ignore, and you don't excuse. Um, so it's much more complicated. So when when Monsignor George said nobody understands what absolution really means, I thought that's my title. <laughs> I like that. I like that nobody because then we can talk about it. <laughs> I love that. I mean, I feel like that's a perfect you know cap on this conversation. I feel like there's so much more I want to. I want to ask you about every detail in this book, but I, I will spare you from <laughs> from that. Um, I guess my, my last question, you know, is I ask every writer this just for any book recommendations that you may have anything you're reading recently, um, kind of open floor. I know you already gave many in this in this conversation, but um, yeah, anything that you're currently diving into right now, I'm reading um, for the the current novel that's that's underway. Um, so so I'm reading some strange um, things that I'm not sure. Um, I'm reading a book right now called The Noonday Devil, which is about a phenomena called acedia, um, which I'm finding absolutely fascinating. Um, just the uh, that that sense of losing heart in the middle of things, in the middle of life, in the middle of experience, um, just uh, growing tired and weary of um, trying. Um, so that's that's sort of where my head is right now. Um, but as 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 far as pleasure reading, I just finished um, Brandon Taylor's novel, The Late Americans. Um, he's a wonderful writer. Um, just uh, boy, the way he uses place and and weather and um, his his use of detail and description um, is is absolutely marvelous. Um, and then I'm I'm blown away by Claire Keegan, the Irish writer, um, whose output has been um, small but gem gem like. Um, uh, I've been recommending her to uh, to all my former students as just just sit back and 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 see how it's how it's done. And I just had I just got Jessamine Ward's uh, new novel, Let Us Descend, which I can't wait to. Um, I think she again as a stylist um she's she's one of the best uh working right now so there's a few <laughs> yeah i love that i mean i so brandon taylor i know he also loves your work um and i actually i have his books up there he's one of my favorite writers um and and claire keegan i've been really fascinated by like how much she can contain in such a small page count oh. it's just fascinating um but yeah thank you for sharing those i mean so i'm always curious to know like what my favorite writers are reading and it's just interesting so thank you yeah, well, as I said, there's the work reading and then there's the, you know, just for fun to remember why I love books in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> you know, squeezing that. <laughs> thank you so much for joining me today. This has been such a treat. And thank you for entertaining my very, you know, broad, crafty questions about trying to understand how you did what you did in this novel. But it was so much fun to chat with you. Great, great questions. And, you know, craft, it's the busman's holiday, as they used to say. I'm really <laughs> happy to talk about that. Anytime. <laughs>